you have to earn the respect of the riders for sure. I mean, that was that's part of the whole thing. You know, if you just keep showing up and you keep putting yourself on leaderboards and you keep getting asked in the tent, eventually they start like asking serious questions and they care what you say, you know, and I think that's the same with the fans. I think it's unfortunate that people don't know some of these guys, but no one knows unless you're Tiger Woods and you have an ESPN sort of junior career, like nobody knows who these kids are. So that you have to earn the respect of the writers. And then if you earn the respect of the writers and the TV, then you earn the respect of the uh, fans and then off you go, you know, it's a, uh, it's a ruthless world, but I guess it's the meritocracy where the sport that we play with. Put another log on the fire Nobody here is getting tired Hello and welcome back to another Fire Drill podcast. It is deep into the first round here at the U.S. Open. Sitting to my left is Michael Bamberger. To my right is Ryan French. Across the ocean is Jeff Ogilvie. And... Uh, Quite an interesting first day. The late, great Dan Jenkins used the word lurkers a lot. We're talking about first round leaderboard. There's certainly some unexpected names. We've got Rory, JT. We have Matt Fitzpatrick, another world-class player. Uh, Jeff, tell us what you think of this leaderboard and just first impressions of the first round. Well, yeah, I mean, lurkers is a pretty good word. I mean, I guess uh, the first round of the US Open, you never work out who's going to win, but you'll probably work out who isn't going to win. Um, so you lose a few people that you may have thought that we were a chance. Um, but most of the players that we expected played pretty well. Um, it's nice to see Rory have a good first round in a major. Um, he's obviously up and about. He's sort of pretty motivated at the moment, it seems. He's sort of as jaunty as he's ever been and sort of seems pretty motivated and fired up to play well. So it's pretty cool to see him play a first, good first round because his first round scoring average in majors has been awful the last quite a long time. So good to see. And he's dangerous when he's up there at the front. JT looks like he's playing really, really well. Um, Fitzpatrick's back there again in a major. So, yeah, I mean, um, interesting. Course looks brutal. I mean, there's a lot, there's quite a few guys under par, but it does have that sort of, they're not getting very far under par, and it does look like that sort of thing that they're just going to start gradually every day. You're going to have slightly less under par, and can anyone be there at the end of the week? Yeah, Ryan, you were uh, out there tracking your guys, and this is actually your dream leaderboard, Mr. Monday Q Info. I mean, the casual fan wants the stars. I know you love the unknown, so you must be enjoying this. Yeah, I enjoy. Uh, not only do I enjoy the leaderboard, I enjoy all the report. Like this is my first time in a media center, <laughs> and I enjoy the disdain of all the, all of all the <laughs> things. There, I have to tell a quick story. So, uh, uh, the reporter shall rem- remain nameless, but behind me, Eric Barnes, who's had a lot of publicity based off of a, a tweet and story I wrote, um, chipped in for Eagle, and a reporter behind me goes, I don't even know who that is. And the guy's wrapped up his tour card on the Corn Ferry Tour. Like, I mean, let's be better than that. You know what I mean? But this board is a perfect, and I love that everyone else hates it. Well, I think you've diagnosed it accurately, which is a lot of reporters, just like a lot of fans, are a little bit lazy, and they don't want to have to make the effort. They, they just want to... They, they know the big names and they know the their storylines and their struggles. And it requires investing a lot of time and effort into a bunch of these other people. And they don't want to make that effort. So I think your critique is accurate. It's really it's it's disdain because they, they have to work harder. Here is this is a, a semi serious uh, take is Hayden Buckley is a tour player. Very good. Had a good college career. Played well today. 
they bring him to the media center. It was me and Kevin Price. Okay? Two people. Like, they don't even... I mean, I understand all of you guys have been through that, and 99.9% of the time, Hayden Buckley's not going to win the U.S. Open. But, I mean, it's 20 feet away. Go <laughs> ask the kid and, like, learn about his story. So on Sunday, if he does win, you already know it. I would chip in there and say it's it's Alan and Michael's fault and their peers because they tell us that the only people worth watching, they've been telling us for years, the only people worth watching are the top 10, top 50 in the world. That's why the average Jeff, golf I fan Jeff, I think what you're saying know is all these guys. the live tour is Alan and Michael's and everybody else's fault because they're saying, hey, we just need to have 48 players and that's it. We can hear you guys. We're part of this oh, podcast. Shit. You know that, right? <laughs> we can hear you. Um, well, my rebuttal to that was let's see how Hayden Buckley does on Friday. Now, if he's still there, then name, name the bet. Then we'll see. Um, we will name it after this podcast. Yeah, let me think about that. Michael, well, welcome to the podcast, Michael. Yes. I just have one quick amusing thing about yeah. that. Uh, Jeff, well, I know Jeff was way too young for this, but uh, my friend Mike Donald, uh, he shot it first round. I think I've got it wrong. I'm going to say 64, but that can't be wrong. At Wingfoot in 84, and Arnold was playing, and Big Jack, and Tom Watson, and everybody. And he, you know, he came in at 6 p.m., and the only person to write him up was Tim Rosenfort. And he wrote the hell out of it. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway. and Tim Rosefort, known for his hustle and his, his curiosity. So kudos to Tim Rosefort. And, you know, we'll, Jeff, it's you, tough. Yeah. Were you ever in this position where, were, were you ever the guy uh, at some point in your career when you're starting out where, like, nobody was expecting you to have a maybe an Australian Open or, or at a major? Uh, well, it wouldn't happen in Australia, I don't think. But you had a Thursday round that nobody was expecting, and suddenly like, all eyes are on you. Were, were you in that position yourself ever? <clears throat> um, a few times. I led. I shot 63 or 4 on the first round at Callaway Gardens. Uh-huh. Uh, the old Southern Open? 2001. Um, and that was my first year out there. But I'd had a few good tournaments. That wasn't a surprise. That's the thing. You definitely feel, when you're one of these guys, the... the uh, disrespect i think from the, the general feeling of like oh we have to talk to this guy he's not going to be there at the end you can feel that energy when you come in there when you're that guy like it's <laughs> i understand it like i completely understand it because you're all going to write stuff and your editor's going to go well who's this guy you're not going to write about him like i understand that um thing and you've stood up and probably listened to 25 of the great the prima donnas get up there and pontificate about their thing so you're just done with the, the those guys but you definitely have that feeling when you're not one of those guys when you come in the media center that no one's really interested and they're just standing there because they're supposed to, you know. Um, you have to earn the respect of the writers, for sure. I mean, that was... Um, that's part of the whole thing, you know. If you just keep showing up and you keep putting yourself on leaderboards and you keep getting asked in the tent, eventually they start, like, asking serious questions and they care what you say, you know. And I think that's the same with the fans, I think. It's unfortunate that people don't know some of these guys, but no one knows, unless you're Tiger Woods and you have an ESPN sort of junior career, like nobody knows who these kids are. So that you have to earn the respect of the writers and then if you earn the respect of the writers and the TV, then you earn the respect of the uh, fans and then off you go, you know. It's, uh, it's a ruthless world, but I guess it's the meritocracy where the sport that we play with. Interesting. Yeah, this whole this whole podcast is going to change my entire professional career. I'm going to those press conferences. I'm going to start writing these kids up. I, I feel <laughs> bad. Like you guys have shamed you've shamed me. I mean, two people were there, and there's no two bigger golf nerds in the world than Kevin Price and myself. And but he must have been so happy because I'm sure you guys are familiar faces. Like that must yeah. have been a great sense of comfort that you were the two dudes who were a, there. A quick side note: Kevin used. <laughs> 
Kevin used the microphone to ask a question. <laughs> it was my favorite part of the entire <laughs> press conference is that there was only two people in the room and he used a microphone. Jeff, how's this, how's this golf course showing up on TV? It looks great. It looks like a very old school, traditional U.S. Open, doesn't it? I mean, um, we had, I don't know, in the last decade, we've had a few different ones, you know. Um, but this looks, yeah, old school U.S. Open. As I said, the leaderboard, not necessarily the names. I mean, the names, it looks pretty normal. There's normally um, a few big names and a few that you haven't heard of in the U.S. Open, right? That's the nature of the field. Um, it, Yeah, it looks kind of normal. It looks like it's going to be one of those ones that everyone sort of gradually drifts back and it's who hangs on. You know, it's got that feel about it. It looks like a grind. It looks like there's birdies out there, which they usually or there can often be in that traditional US Open Thursday. Um, I'm sure it'll get tougher every day. Doesn't don't think there's any rain in the forecast, so it's going to get as firm as they want it to get. It's um, hopefully stays within the realm of like sensible, you know. But it looks great right now. It's kind of it looks like a perfect US Open from afar, watching it on TV at this point. Well, and today was overcast and almost a little cool, and that obviously is going to keep some moisture in the course. But tomorrow, high 80s. I mean, it's going to be by far the hottest day of the week. People, you know, the players talk about how a course can change from day to day, but I think the casual fan has trouble really understanding that. Jeff, can you talk about how much a course can evolve in just 24 hours and if you have an extreme example of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, firstly, the greens. I mean, the greens are so stressed. Well, where, well for, I mean, firstly, the weather. Like you say, overcast, not much wind. It's a very, it's a nice temperature. It's a great sort of environment to play golf in. Sun comes out, you get a little bit of wind, look like it looks what happens this afternoon. It's just there's another element to the thing, to the the ball flight changes a little bit when the temperature warms up. The wind obviously adds sort of an element of difficulty. Um, greens gradually generally firm up during the day because the the irrigation, if they are putting any water on the greens at night, it doesn't go on after the first group or from after about five in the morning. So naturally it just sort of evaporates and dries out during the day. So they're at their firmest at the end of the day. So you can see it change in front of you. And a normal PGA Tour course is a relatively docile setup, I would say, compared to these things. It's not pushing the course to its absolute limit. But when you push green, especially greens and fairways, you're cutting them really short and you're pushing them to their limit. They, they're right on the edge. So they die, they're on the edge of dying really quickly. I mean, they're not dying, but they feel like that because there's just a lack of water there and the leaf sort of dries out and it um it can really change from morning group to afternoon group and then day to day even it's even more so you know it's like it feels like thursday it takes till after lunch for it to start getting sort of crunchy and hard and then friday it's 11 o'clock and thursday it's a little bit earlier it seems to happen a little bit earlier every day in these u.s opens and then sunday it's just like brutal from the first group you know um which is how they like it and i think that's how these great championships should be i think you're trying to sort the wheat from the chaff and you're trying to get the um, cream to rise to the top. And I think that the firmer and more sort of crustier golf course gets towards the end, you do that, you know. Um, the most extreme thing, I think, Pebble Beach, when um, Gary Woodland won, when was that, 10? No, no that was 19. 19. 15? 19. 19. No, well, the one before that then. Um, Let's see. Yeah, that Graham, was, Graham McDowell, I believe. Yeah, 2010. Graham McDowell. The Graham McDowell one was incredible. I mean, the pebbles always sort of cloudy in the morning in Carmel, as you know, Alan. <laughs> and then at some point every day that week, the sun would come out. And they had those power greens out there. And the, 
there's apparently there's multiple varieties of that grass in those greens, which you can't tell when the sun was out and they were perfect in the morning. But as soon as the sun came out, there was one particular variety of that grass that just laid down and went brown. And so you had all these like low bits and high bits. And all of a sudden, just like 10 minutes after the sun came out, the greens completely changed and they were almost unputtable. And in the morning, they were fantastic until the sun came out. So um, that one was the most extreme change. Absolutely. Well, I mean, Wingfoot, the, the, the Wingfoot, the year I won, the morning group to the afternoon group putting on the greens was incredibly... My afternoon round on Thursday was just outrageously difficult to putt on. And then morning on Friday, they were like pristine and perfect. So when you get these stressed out on the edge greens, they just take footprints harder. They just take wear harder and they just get sort of... The moisture goes out of them by the end of the day and they get that sort of shiny look where people are stepping and stuff and they... They can deteriorate in front of your eyes, actually. And but, and I'm not trying to say that's a bad thing. As I said, I think that's a really good thing because um, you're trying to sort out the men from the boys. And usually the good putters hold putts in those situations and stuff. But, yeah, it does incredible the difference from Thursday morning to Sunday afternoon in the U.S. Open. And a normal, traditional, good-weather U.S. Open, it's amazing the difference. And to your point about, about Pebble being, you know, its own microclimate, as they always say there, in 92, the same thing happened when Tom Kite won. And people were congratulating Colin Montgomery on winning. And I don't recall what it was, but a monsoon of wind came in, if there is such a phrase. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was a totally different golf course. and was hang on for dear life for, for, uh, for everybody. And that's part of the greatness of the Open Championship. But, you know, the day is so long. Everybody's playing off the first tee. And, you know, as it's, it's said every year, you know, where you are in the draw sheet Thursday, Friday will often affect where you are Sunday afternoon, if you're even playing by Sunday afternoon. Well, you say that's the greatness of that's because I'm that's watching. The about the Open Championship. <laughs> if you're a player, that's sort of you get very unlucky in the Open Championship. It turns your nose at you. Uh, it, you get a little jaded if you get a couple of bad opens in a row. Would you um, have a two T? Would you have? If, you're right. But if if you ran the RNA, would you have a two T start for uh, for the Open Championship? You know, you know what? I up? mean, now that I'm, uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I think. Look, great players win the Open. Generally, the right player wins, and the right players are up there. It, it works out in the long run, right? I mean, if you get a couple of randoms, you get a couple of randoms. I mean, Louis had the dreamy draw at um, the old course in 05. Was it? I mean, he just had an incredible draw. But, like, history has proven that he was the right winner, you know? So, I mean, it sucks when you get the bad draw, but it's it's just part of that tournament. It's just it's It's part of what gives it that tournament it's quirk if you like <laughs> yes. from but it would be so different uh, think about the links courses like like maybe like troon where all the holes go in one direction on the front and, and a different direction on the back and if you started on 10 it's such a different rhythm and a different oh. experience oh you're preaching to the converted. I would never <laughs> want to change anything about the Open. You know, and it's so interesting how different the philosophies are. And, you know, Jeff, as you've gotten to know USGA people over the air, I'm wondering if you can speak to this. But I once heard Mike Davis say, in an unguarded moment, I can have any winning score I want. And I'm just wondering, Jeff, how do they feel about 280? Do they have some special relationship with that number of the USGA people? Do you have a sense of that? They certainly seem to have a preoccupation with par. Like, what is par? They want to make par a very valuable thing, make it very difficult to shoot, even par for the week. They don't seem to like us making birdies too much. Um, yeah, look, I, 
I, look, and I think that's great at most courses. At a course like the Country Club, obviously you can set it up sensibly and have that sort of score shot. Sometimes you go to places that you have to get really a bit out of control to get people to shoot that score, and I think that's silly then. But I think when good, when really, really good shots are getting punished and making bogeys and doubles, I don't like it. You know, I just don't think that's right. But generally, and I'm not out there this week, and I'm sure a couple of the boys who've had some high numbers might disagree, but it looks like if you play well you'll have a reasonable score. And I think, I don't think any player can have a real fair complaint that if you're hitting good shots, they're getting kind of rewarded. You know, really good shots. They should be really good shots. Um, but if you hit good shots all week, you should get rewarded. If you hit good shots and get punished, which happens, which happened a few times, we've seen, that, that's a bit over the top. Um, so I think they're a little probably too preoccupied with the score we shoot. But for the most part, they do a reasonable job at it. I think just sometimes <laughs> you go to these historic golf clubs that have these reputations and I feel sometimes the club has such a such a sort of an ego issue with anyone shooting under par that has to be hard Oakmont's hard so we have to make it harder than it's ever been before and Shinnecock's hard so it's going to be harder than it's ever been before I think when you go to these newer venues that don't have that history I think the USGA end up getting to set it up kind of how they want but I think when you go to these traditional venues I think sometimes there's some kickback from the club to make sure that it's actually hard enough yeah, the commentary in when Bryson won at Wingfoot was hilarious. Like on Twitter, oh, say your prayer for the Wingfoot members, you know, because the scores were low and he was kind of taking apart the golf course. But um, anyway, that, that's an interesting discussion. Do you have something you want to add, Michael? Well, just, you know, it, it's so nice to come here and see just a proper golf course. And j- just to your point, Jeff, I remember two U.S. Opens particularly, um, Pinehurst, the year that Michael Campbell won, and Marion, the year that Justin Rose won. The moment you arrived and looked at the golf course, it's like, this is not what the golf... You were at both, weren't you, Jeff? Mm-hmm. And yeah. to, just to, to my eye, having been there under normal conditions a lot over the years, the golf course didn't look like it's supposed to look like. Like, I don't know. I don't know how else to word it. It just didn't look like the golf course. It looked like they had manipulated the golf course to make 280 or something right around there, the winning score. And I don't think that's... I think it's a shame, really. We've evolved. As golfers, I mean, it's we're using metal woods and better balls and better equipment and everything's better. It's like you go play Marion where there really isn't much room to make it much bigger. Um, we're going to shoot lower. We just are. That's just just the nature of right. sport. I mean, like we wouldn't watch the 100 metres at the Olympics if they weren't getting faster every time, you know. Like I know it's a little different in golf, but um, when you have to manipulate a course to force a score, you're right. I mean, Marion just got a bit narrow, I thought. Um, it was a fantastic open, but it just got a bit narrow because it was just they were a bit scared because it felt a bit small, you know. Um, right. But I thought Pinehurst yeah. that, that year with Michael Campbell also was way too narrow. I mean, just like little alleyways. It just didn't look really like a, like, like, like a proper golf course. Do you, do you think, Jeff, the um, external factors influences how the USJ would set up the course? For instance, I think the last thing the USJ would need right now with everything going on in the political landscape of golf is for their setup of their course to become the story. Do you think they would go out of the way to make sure that doesn't happen? No, I don't know. They generally seem to go out of their way to make sure that does happen. <laughs> um, um, so that would be against tradition. Um, I don't know. Obviously, they, they want a really, really good, positive like, wow, how good is the US Open? How good is the USGA? Look at this. The traditions of the game are great. I mean, it's 
coincidental or ironic or really handy that it's maybe the oldest golf club that we play golf tournaments at. It's one of the most historic venues. It's like um, one of the founding clubs of the USGA at this sort of time when golf's sort of doing what it's doing. So um, it's good timing for the USGA and it looks like they've nailed it. I mean, they've got three days to go, but um, yeah, I think they would have been conscious about let's just, let's fingers crossed we can make this just a great, attractive US Open that it just gets everyone excited about the traditions of golf and how good the U.S. Open is. Right. Well, and I mean, the classic example is they screw up Shinnecock in 04. The club almost never wants to come back. They finally get to go back in, in 18 to prove they can do it right, and they, they have another controversy there, and they, some pinpoint, you know, places, positions were on the edge, and like, well, it was warmer and windier than we thought. You're right by the ocean. It's always windy in the afternoon. Right. Like, it was so absurd. But So, Ryan, let me get your take on just the feeling on the grounds out there you know first round there's uh did you what did you see what did you hear and what was kind of just the the feeling for uh, and what's it like to be at a u.s open for you yeah when it really counts now yeah i mean it was it's awesome it is awesome but i i was i mean it's pretty subdued out there today i mean part of that is i think it's not a great spectator course so a lot of you know there's not a a lot of big huge grandstands there's when people are standing around the green, it's six or seven deep, so they're they're not seeing the shots. But so I I was a I mean considering I know it'll get more rowdy as we go and people start to separate themselves and everybody starts to take divisions and all those. But I was a little disappointed with the atmosphere. If I I mean obviously I'm following people where you know out of the the main part of the draw, but there was not like a lot of roars. There wasn't a lot of yelling out it was it's kind of subdued in my opinion i totally agree and i was following rory on, on his back nine who as you come from the irish island you're playing in boston you're, you're already gonna have fans and he's rory McIlroy. everyone loves him and he was leading the tournament and it was actually a little quiet i mean the grandstands are small and some of them were only half full there's because uh, I was out there with our colleague, Colt Nedler, we're, we're men of the people. We're not coastal elites. We didn't go inside the ropes, and we were just walking with the fans. And it's messy. Like, there are a lot of choke points. We're used to being inside the ropes. So we got stranded a half dozen times in the wrong place. And I, hats off to the golf fans because it is a really challenging course. And if you get on the wrong side of the green or a fairway, you can't see anything. And it's hard to get here. It's hard. Well, it's really hard to get here. Like, as... You know, Pebble Beach is not easy, Piner's not easy, but this one seems yeah. particularly difficult. And, I mean, I don't go, you know, I've gone to a lot of PGA Tour events in my over my life, but it's been a, like, I, I go to events with none. There's a lot of dead ends. Like, somehow I get up to the thing, and I'm like, oh, I just want to go to the green. No, I had inside the ropes. Humble brag again. But, <laughs> uh, like, there's a lot of dead ends. I was walking with uh, Luke Gannon's wife today, and we're and she had outside, you know, just a regular thing, and, like, walk up and they would have to cross over i mean again credit to people who actually try to follow people instead of just sit at a green and, and wait for people to come to them yeah it's it's a tough one here but there is hope because my warriors are going to beat the celtics tonight there's gonna be a lot of grouchy bostonians tomorrow and i think they'll bring a different edge to the, the spectating tomorrow well ryan to your point i'd like to ask this of jeff i have never thought of the u.s open as an i don't really think of any professional golf as as entertainment at all, I think of them as athletic endeavors. But of all the majors and of all tournament golf, 
This one is the least entertaining. It's not meant to be entertaining. It's you know it's been said a million times. It is a war of attrition. It is a you know a test of uh, of mental strength and a lot of other things. And so to your right, Ryan, to your to your point, like I kind of like that. I mean, there's sort of something slow and boring and methodical <laughs> about a U.S. Open. I've always enjoyed that about U.S. Opens, even though it's not entertaining. But I don't know, Jeff. Do you have a feeling about what we're trying to talk about here? <clears throat> yeah, I get it. I mean. Um, I can't really speak. I've never been to ES Open not playing. So uh-huh. I can only speak from inside. Um, and they all vary. They're all different, you know. Talk um, about a humble break. I think that... <laughs> I mean, my God. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, sorry, Ryan, I, I think he's just stating a fact. I don't <laughs> yeah. think it's a humble no, break. I know, or but nothing. I'm just saying. It's like, like, I go to US Opens to play. And I'm yeah. Well, I, in Masters Week, I asked Jeff if he'd ever gone over and played you know, Palmetto. Yeah. He's like, no, tournament week, I just play Augusta Nationals. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah right, my bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and that's a good course, but Palmetto's good, too. <laughs> anyway, continue, Jeff. Um, I think generally, I think sometimes in U.S. Opens, the the fans and the spectators aren't really sure what to make of what's going on out there. I think it's really difficult to have a sense, because to, to probably the average fan who's not really in tune with PGA Tour events and doesn't go to a lot of them, from the side of the fairway, it probably looks the same as every other thing. They think what we what pros do is miraculous anyway, the way they play. So they're just uh-huh. happy to see it. They're probably I think sometimes in a, in a U.S. Open, it takes the spectators a while to work out what a good shot actually is um, and what a good score actually is because it's so different from what they see. All these guys are making bogeys and hitting it to 40 feet and two-putting. Like, it's not really like you're in the desert or at a normal PGA Tour event, right? right? So I think as the week goes on, generally the respect for some of those great up and downs and the respect for the, the, the four iron that goes to 30 feet, it's there because it's been earned during the week. But I think it takes a while for the fan to get educated about what good golf is out of the US Open because it's so different. That is a very good point today. I was following Lou Gannon. There were some people uh, just around the green that he was. He short-sided himself. He was in the back of the bunker. It was a do- I mean, impossible. Given 100 balls, he couldn't have kept it within seven feet, and he kept it in seven feet, within seven feet. I mean, even he, like, laughed when he got, you know, the kind of shot when you get out of the bunker, and you're like, okay, that was ridiculous. Never do that again. And the guys behind them go, now I know why he's in the last group. Yeah. And I'm like, oh. That was probably Tiger Woods would have been excited about that shot. Yeah. So. yeah. To yeah. Jeff's point, I mean, if if you you know you got a crummy line, the first cut, and you chase a hooded six iron right up the middle, and it runs on the green, you got forty feet in your two putt. That's great golf, but it's not entertaining. But if you know something about golf, like yeah, that's yeah. good. It's fun. Yeah. It's yeah. not fun, fun, but it's interesting fun. And it's true because when I was out there uh, playing in a, a parallel fairway to Rory was a guy I didn't recognize him by sight. I mean, a qualifier who's probably hasn't made his way in the world of golf yet. And he kind of foozled one out of the rough, didn't go very far. And you get the fans like, oh, yeah. It was almost a sense of embarrassment, like this guy's not a very good golfer. But in reality, that's just the U.S. Open. He had a horrendous lie. He did the best he could. Uh, But there's definitely, as a golf fan, you see shots you're not going to see any other time all year long where guys are just getting kicked in the teeth and... Uh, but it does it does subdue them. They're like, oh, dang, yes, yeah. So, I get it. Um, what, well, go ahead, Michael. Well, I, Joe, I was, from what you, you watched on TV today, you probably saw some of Rory. He seems tighter than he used to be. Like, like the bad shots frustrate him more than they used to, just in terms of how he physically responds to them. And the good shots, he seems like, well, you know, that's what I'm supposed to do. Just looks a little different than he used to. Do you have a thought about that, Ron? Yeah, he's trying to save the PGA Tour. It's a, mm, it's a lot on it's his a heavy mind. burden. <laughs> it's a heavy burden. Yeah. 
I like it. I thought it was great. I thought it was great. I thought Rory looks like he actually really wants to win. Um, he sometimes looks, well, I don't know. No, every, everybody has different looks, right? He's had a career of just being jaunty and happy and taking it all in his stride. But um, he really, really, really wants to win this. You can tell, like, he beat the bunker up a little bit there on that one hole. Mm-hmm. And um, to your point, he looked different. It was more Tiger-like. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, um, just he is into this more than we've seen him into it for a while. I mean, last week, you got a feeling that was one of his favorite wins, obviously. He just loved it. It was like a bit of a stamp on, like, I'm, I'm actually the best player. Come on, guys. Like, what are you guys talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it seems like he's got a real sort of fire in his belly at the moment. And I think that's a good sign for Rory. I think a lot of players... I mean, Doc Rotella and all the... They all might tell me I'm wrong, but there's a lot of players that seem to be better when they're just on edge a little bit, you know? Like, there's a, sort of a bit of a fire, and as long as you can control it and it doesn't affect your next shot, I kind of enjoyed saying that from Rory. I think he'd be better to be a little bit more into it more often, you know? Yeah. Jeff, um, you know, of course, at Augusta, they have that uh, Tuesday night dinner, and they all talk about their former Masters wins. Have you ever had a conversation with Rory or Tiger or any former U.S. Open winner where, like, you could see, oh, there's, we're on the same wavelength here. There's something that we both understand about what, how you win a U.S. Open and what it means to win a U.S. Open that you would have been privy to that, you know, a, a, another golfer might not have been. There certainly is an understanding or a feeling. I mean, in 19, last time we were at Pebble, we had the reunion again where everyone was there. Right. Everyone, I think, a cup, except a couple, um, the, the alive US Open champions, we have a dinner and take a photo. And it was a fantastic, it's a fantastic occasion. We all played, a lot of us played Cyprus that week. So again, another humble brag. But um, it, you do, there is sort of a, I don't think it's necessarily just exclusive to US Open champions, but those who have sort of won those big tournaments, there is sort of this, not unsaid, but this feeling of respect for the people that you're talking to about the game. And when maybe in the locker room, sometimes when everyone starts talking, you might tune out a little bit, but you don't tune out when you're listening to guys like that. I mean, even like Scott Simpson and Andy North starts talking and these guys, you just listen. Curtis Strange, you know, you you just listen. And there is this sort of feeling of just, deep respect for these guys that they've done that and they've been through they went through that what i went through and they they came through and that's mm-hmm. um i think you know because you know how hard it is that you you give the ultimate respect to those who do it i'm sure the the, the green jacket the green coat winners it's um the masters are the same you know they have that same sort of thing amongst themselves um but yeah there is a, a level of respect for guys who have won this tournament that's uh yeah, I don't know what you call it, a bro code or something, but it's, um, uh-huh. yeah, it's nice. It's nice, yeah. May, may I humble brag about that day at uh, Cypress Point? Uh, I happened to be there as a uh, as a spectator, and Lee Trevino uh, showed up uh, without clubs, looking tired. I said, Mr. Trevino, can I get you a cup of coffee? He said, that would be great. And I got him a cup of coffee, and he was happy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, it also, it, it warms my heart that you're mentioning, mentioning uh Andy Bean, like I haven't heard that name in a long time, but the 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 uh, respect that Jeff has for someone who's been in the arena like that, that's just cool. Andy Bean or Andy North? Well, he said Andy North, but I have an Andy Bean story. Okay, I was a kid. Oh, he said Andy North? <laughs> yeah. He said well, Andy you know, North. You know, you know I was Jeff, checking the scores on my phone. My apologies. Do you, know why, do you know why Jeff would mention Andy North in this context? Because he won two US Opens? Yeah. I, I do know Andy North. My apologies. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the wires got crossed. Andy, Andy, North, Be- Andy, Andy Bean's Bean. thing was Bermuda grass greens. We all know that. Andy Bean. 1986, I was like nine years old. 
I don't remember this story, but my dad tells it a lot until he, he can't remember anything anymore. But we're at the 86, uh, I think it was 86, Oakland Hills, and Andy Bean. Uh, 85. 85? Okay, I was eight years old. Andy Bean hits a shot into the green, and it, like, slowly trickles off the false front all the way down to the bottom. And uh, he gives the finger to the green, and my dad yells at him, there's kids out here, and Andy Bean turns around and says, fuck you. <laughs> wow. That, I mean, so that's the beauty of the U.S. Open right there. It's, <laughs> that wouldn't have happened at the Bob Hope Classic, right? Like that, no, no. You want to push the players to the breaking point. That's the whole, that's the whole purpose of this tournament. So that is a glaring example. Um, but any, anyone else on the leaderboard that we should discuss? Don't you have a, uh, like, you're the only person on the planet with, like, an A-plus David Lingworth story? Yes. Uh, Mark Baldwin, I'm kidding for Mark Baldwin, we're the first alternate at a Corn Ferry event in Vegas. And Matt Every withdraws. Thank you, Matt Every. And uh, we get in a group with Eric Compton, who is very slow, and David Lingmurth, who is as slow. And so we're on the clock most of the day. And Mark is not very slow. He's methodical, but not slow. And in between every hole, a different player would walk with us. So when we were walking with Compton, he would say, God, David Lingmurth is so fucking slow he's terrible I, I can't believe it i can't play like this and then the next hole we'd be walking with lingmurth and lingmurth would say that compton he's terribly slow i can't believe it <laughs> and they uh got into a somewhat heated uh discussion in the uh in the scoring area and uh th that's my david lingmurth story i like it that's a good one um a couple names we this this came up in our in our thread so i'll i'll, I'll do this just so mark coach doesn't yell at us the, um the U.S. Amateur, amateur champ, um, James Piot, who has turned professional and taken the live money, is playing here as a U.S. Amateur, uh, which is an awkward scenario for the USJ. It's probably their worst nightmare that he were to win. Um, and then you have Stuart Hagestead, who is you know, a cocktail circuit legend. He was on the board for a long time. And actually, someone posed the question, who would the USJ rather have win the tournament? I would say Hagestead, even though... <laughs> By his no question, by his lofty standards, you know he he only plays the nicest courses and the most exclusive clubs. Like this is borderline if he was even going to show up because it's probably not quite nice enough for him. But um, yes, but ninety nine percent of the of the I mean the PGA Tour <laughs> tweeted out today that he works a job full time, so ninety nine percent of the world doesn't know that Stewart just kind of plays golf for a living. Right. So. In it's Stewart Hag. Well, what's sure. who's, well, who's, what's your opinion about the amateur? If the amateur getting the Getting to st continue to play, even though, you know, of course, at a, why don't you explain now? At, at Augusta, that doesn't happen. I don't know about the other tournaments. No, the Open's taking that away as well. I have mixed feelings. I mean, you, you, you won the U.S. Amateur. It was a, a great achievement to, to win it as the reward is playing the U.S. Open. Whether your life and your, your material needs and your career demands that there's some change in your status, you still won the U.S. Amateur. I'm kind of okay with it. It's just particularly awkward right now because he took the live money and all that, but... Um, what, what do you think about that, Jeff? Do you have any feelings on whether he should be able to play now that he's a pro, but he's still the U.S. amateur champ? <clears throat> well, I think, I, to your point, I think if you win the U.S. amateur, you avert your way into the U.S. Open, I period. So, I don't. I think, um, I think you go way back. The traditions of the game, I'm sure, are really important. Well, they are important, and they're really interesting. But back when those sort of rules came along, that sort of amateur professional divide was bigger there really was a difference between an amateur golfer and a professional golfer i mean they had jobs real jobs where they actually went to them um 
and had careers and they turned up and they played the summer amateur tournaments every year and then they went back to their jobs like that was a the difference they're not like that anymore these kids are little professional they're professional amateurs it's an asterisk next to their name only i mean if the in tennis if you qualify for the us open regardless of your status if you play the first round you get paid you know i um i'm not saying we should pay amateurs but i just think it's a different world now and i think these kids are professionals from when they're kids almost you know they're playing ajga with gallery ropes and leaderboards like from when they're little kids it's just it's a it's just a little asterisk next to the name only so um i think the amateur pro divide is narrower than it's ever been so i don't think something like turning pro should stop you playing the us open ever really and uh the live thing that's a that uh, uh, we don't have to dive into that that's up to the usga they let everybody in who was exempt who's playing the live so i don't know why you would you'd have to let you have to if you let one in you let all in right oh yeah i would yeah i was just suggesting it just adds it's one thing to turn pro and get money it's not the thing for you know to turn pro and take the live money which for some people brings baggage but yeah i agree you got to treat all all the pros the same um anyway jeff we know you have a hard stop here because you have to get the kids to school so um one last thought, Michael. Well, I, j just along the lines of, I had I posed this question to uh, Sandy Tatum years ago, and he said by 2030, he expected that a uh, a, a transgender uh, golfer would uh, would qualify for the uh, for the U.S. Open. But along those same lines, I can almost guess your answer, Jeff. But how would you feel about it? It's happened. Women trying to uh, uh, qualify for for U.S. Opens through open qualifying, and do you think? Do you think we're moving closer to that day that'll happen? You'll just see a woman in the field of, of a U.S. Open. Um, look, I hope that day would come. Um, it's uh, I love what they did in Europe last week. Um, I I think it's cool when they've sort of had they've had a couple of mixed tournaments down here. Um, I think anybody open is open. That just because um, you shouldn't be. Uh, anyone should be able to play it. It should be the best golfer in America, you know, around the same test. Absolutely. I don't, I think it's a big test. I think it's going to take a sort of a, sort of a big, strong Lexi Thompson, like someone who can really hit the ball a long way. And is like really amazingly strong because it's not really the length. I think you can get some, there's some plenty of the female golfers who are hitting it far enough probably these days, but it's that power out of the rough, I think would be difficult. Um, but yeah, have at it. I don't see why not. Well, yeah. just how there's a 57 year old qualifier that, you know, it's, there's no, that's what makes it the U S open. It's just the most democratic tournament there is along with, with the open championship. And, um, and I think that would, I think that'd be amazing. And, and a lot of these 36 old qualifiers like uh, century and old Oaks, I think, uh, Ryan, were you talking about that the other day? Yeah. Two sixty five hundred yard or shorter courses, maybe, you know, there's a lot of women who could get, a, get around that in, you know, one thirty six for a day. Now they might come here and shoot one fifty six, but, they could play the win. A lot of guys are going to shoot 156, so no shame in <laughs> Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, all right. Anything you want to say before we go, Ryan? No. It's good. Another good podcast. All right. Well, thanks for being here. So uh, before we go, we're going to thank our, our sponsors uh, at the Dormy Workshop who make all kinds of beautiful uh, leather goods. You can see that you can see them at firepitcollector.com. And it, it's very much a throwback vibe. Like you could imagine, Francis, we met having a, a Dormy Workshop head cover. Was that was that too much? Did I take it too far? No. And how about a special note to Jeff's kids waiting patiently to be taken wherever they're going to next? I know. They didn't barge in. They didn't demand. <laughs> you know, you, you make them toast. Like that's A plus to Ogilvy children. So uh, I, I don't know about you guys, but 
I don't think anyone's kids beg to go to school. <laughs> That's right. Fair. They're like, Dad, make this the longest podcast of your life. We're fine with that. <laughs> so, all right. Well, this has been another fire drill from the Country Club and from Melbourne, Australia. We'll be doing this again throughout the week. So thanks to everyone for tuning in. And um, Michael, Ryan, Zalan Shipnuck, we're out of here. Uh, that's a wrap. Thank you. Put another log on the fire. Nobody here is getting tired. 